Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 4th, 2012, and my guest is Jonathan Rodden, a professor of political science at Stanford University and a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Jonathan, welcome to EconTalk. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk about your research on voting and geography, and if we have time, we'll explore some other issues that uh, you've been working on as well. But I want to start by talking about the book you're working on, which has at least the tentative title, The Long Shadow of the Industrial Revolution, Geography and the Representation of the Left. Let's start with what seems to be true in the United States geographically. People in cities seem to vote differently from people in the suburbs and rural areas with a lot of consistency. What do we know about this pattern in the United States and, and outside the United States? Yeah, it's something that I, I think anyone uh, who looks at an electoral map in the United States is, is can, can easily um, identify. I mean, we've we've been mainly looking at county level maps over the last uh, over the last few elections, and it's it's hard not to see that kind of uh, pattern when you look at a at a state like Missouri, for instance. You'll see that St. Louis County and uh, and the counties around Kansas City are blue, and the and the rest of the state looks kind of some some shade of of red or uh, or purple. Where blue, um, where blue uh, means supporting Democrats and red means voting for Republicans. Unfortunately, those are the colors that American cartographers have uh, have picked up. In the rest of the world, red, of course, means left. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. We have to do things a little bit differently. It makes it hard for me when I when I make the the maps to try to explain the uh, the, the <laughs> argument in the in the book and elsewhere. Um, but uh, but yes, Americans are always uh, referring to to the Democrats as blue for some reason. Um, but uh, but this is uh, something that shows up in those county level. maps. But what we didn't see that, that is something I found interesting is I've uh, been investing a lot of time and effort into collecting precinct level data uh, and then trying to make uh, some precinct level maps. And I've been doing this for a variety of other countries as well, um, is, is that this kind of uh, correlation between population density and voting behavior seems to hold even at much lower levels of analysis. So that if we take we go within some county, even in rural Missouri, uh, and we go from the, peri- you know, the, the very sparsely populated periphery of that county, and then we move into the county seat, a place that has a little bit of rental housing, maybe clustered along some railroad tracks, um, we see that correlation between population density and voting behavior. It shows up even at that very small, even at that very kind of fine-grained scale. And that's something I, I found really interesting and started looking around to see where is that true kind of more generally. And uh, it's it's true in lots of places. I'm discovering it's not completely universal. There are there are uh, conservative cities. Uh, there, you know, there and, and some of them have uh, have a, a kind of a long uh, history. So Stockholm is a, an example of a place where there's a uh, the, a clustering of conservatives in the in the city center, and there has been for some time. There is a you know well-known neighborhoods in Madrid that are that are um, kind of everyone can point to that is the you know they're densely populated and are and are conservative. Um, I mean, the United States, it's it's really quite striking. I, I think the only maybe the only example of a place that is very densely populated that votes uh, consistently for uh, Republicans is Little Havana in in Miami. Um, but kind of, that, a, that kind of the exception that proves the rule. 
Exactly, exactly. So that, that correlation is especially strong in the U.S. In that, and what I've found is that it's very strong in the other countries that use these winner-take-all majoritarian institutions, which really I'm referring to places colonized by Great Britain uh, and, and Britain itself. Uh, and so we see that correlation between density uh, and voting in, in, in Britain and in New Zealand, uh, before, you know, especially before they changed their electoral institutions. Uh, in Canada, it's very striking as well. So I've made some, some precinct-level maps of Canada where you look at the Great Lakes states in the U.S. and you look at the Great, uh, you look at the kind of Southern Ontario and that that part of Canada, and the electoral maps look identical. You can't even tell where one country stops and the other one um, um, begins. Uh, the, you have that clustering of left votes in the cities, so it's a it's a very uh, common pattern. And one of the things I'm still trying to fully understand is under what conditions do we really is that pattern uh, come through the strong? Is, is it is it most clear? And this is where I've, uh, I've, you know, the book ultimately doesn't really have anything in the title about urbanization or cities. It says something about about industrialization, and uh, I think that is really the the story. That when we when I when I mentioned that Stockholm has these dense conservative neighborhoods, um, I think that has something to do with the fact that the process of industrialization was different in Sweden than it was in the United States. Now, Jonathan, before uh, you get, and, before you get to that, just explain for a minute when you use the phrase "winner take all." Uh, you're mm-hmm. referring to the fact that once you get more votes than the other person, you get the seat. doesn't matter whether you win 80 with 80, 90 percent or 50.1 or if there's multiple candidates, if you win by one vote, right? Right. And, and this is, uh, you know, this is the way elections were conducted in most of the world uh, up until a period around World War One. You divide up a country into districts and there are candidates running in those districts and the person with the most votes wins. And it, it could be a four or five party split and someone could win um, with 30 uh, percent of the vote. And in fact, that happened quite frequently in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, in, in So most European countries had these uh, a system much like the United States with uh, winner take all districts. Uh, but then there was a big transformation around uh, between between the turn of the century and uh, at the tail end of World War One, where a lot of continental European countries switched to a system uh, of proportional representation, where the the um, number of seats you received in the legislature is proportionate to the number of votes received by a party, which has the effect of inviting, uh, uh, kind of creating uh, more political parties. So uh, when we when I, when I teach a course on political institutions, you know one of the first things we think about in the United States is if if the U.S. had uh, proportional representation, what kind of a party system would we have? And 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 uh, you know most students kind of when they think about it believe there'd be a libertarian party that would that would be more successful, and that perhaps there would be a party that was more focused on on um, African Americans. Um, those are at least a couple of the possibilities. Green we'd party. have finer grain distinctions on the two. Yeah, Green Party and you know, maybe a party that is um, economically liberal but socially conservative and vice versa. And uh, that's the kind of thing that seems to emerge. So these, these electoral rules can have, a, um, can have a really important impact on, on um, who gets represented and what politics looks like in a country. And what I'm doing in this project is thinking about a different from that, thinking about that from a perspective, it's a little different than the way we usually think about it. Uh, I'm, I'm linking it to geography, um, as, and, and I, I think that's that's part of the reason why these some of these countries look very different. 
is when you combine the geography of preferences with these, these electoral rules, you get some really different kinds of results. And which countries uh, have proportional representation right now? What are some countries that, that do it that way rather than districts with winner-take-all seat, one seat uh, per district uh, or number of seats per district? So the most of continental Europe uses some some type of of, uh, of proportional representation, and uh, so the maybe the, the country that, that people tend to think of as the purest form of proportional representation is the Netherlands, where there's a there's a very high uh, proportionality between the percentage of the votes and the seats, and there's really just one single national district. Uh, the country isn't even divided up into into various electoral districts. The same is true of Israel. So these are often kind of thought of as the purest forms of proportional representation. But there are also proportional electoral systems in most of continental Europe. It's been a, a one country after another made that uh, switch uh, to the point where it's really the, the, the wealthy developed countries that still use uh, single member districts are limited to France and the uh, and the former British colonies that I that I mentioned earlier, including the United States. What about but the United also, Kingdom? So the UK still uses uh, it's kind of still the classic case of a winner take all uh, majoritarian system, and it's and it's one that is still uh, you know kind of the all many of the other countries that were colonized by Great Britain also use these institutions. So once we move beyond the wealthy countries, uh, India uses a single member district winner take all system very much like Great Britain. And a lot of the uh, islands in the Caribbean that were colonized by England and uh, several African countries. Now, a lot of people have so a, a lot of people have looked at. I know at Israel and and speculated whether its uh, relative instability of of party leaders and and prime ministers is a result of its fractious uh, party system, where there's lots and lots of parties along the lines that you mm-hmm. opened and talked about. Do other countries have that? Is there any I – mean, the United States, obviously, we only have two strong major parties that has benefits but lots of, lots of negatives. Uh, the result of that is that the president usually stays in power for four years unless, uh, God forbid, there's a, a catastrophe, an accident or, or, or crime. <laughs> uh, it's very rare. The House can turn over every two years but often stays in the hands of one party for a relatively long period of time. And so people claim that the United States is – because of that, because of the Constitution, tends to be a little bit inertial, uh, doesn't have a lot of ability to, ch- to change dynamically and quickly, whereas these other systems uh, change more quickly, and, but they're less, quote, stable, which obviously obviously there are costs and benefits of, of either system. But uh, is that true about proportional representation? Is it less stable? Is it more, quote, fractious, whatever that means? Well, I think the, the the problem with that claim is that proportional representation uh, contains such a wide variety of different uh, types of, of 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 systems, and so Israel might be kind of at one extreme. Uh, there are ways of making a proportional representation system a little bit less chaotic. So, a, a kind of an earlier example of exactly that complaint: uh, some people blamed the the uh, the rise of the Nazis and the the, the breakup of Weimar Germany to uh, to an excessively proportional uh, electoral system that created lots of parties and lots of chaos. And you know, 
constantly uh, coalitions falling and new ones, uh, new ones forming and elections being called. Um, and so in the German post-war constitution, they created a system that uh, is, is far less uh, fractious, and they have the thing called the constructive vote of no confidence, so that if you can't t- take apart a government unless you have another one um, prepared already in place. Um, they also have a 5% hurdle, that, uh, so that you have to have 5% of the vote to get uh, representation in parliament. So, so lots of, uh, of, of proportional countries have institutions like these that make them a lot more stable. And it's also the case that voters in, in, in many Scandinavian countries, for instance, have a pretty clear sense of which parties will coalesce. And so they go to the polls almost thinking, even though there are you know, five, six, seven parties in some cases, there are often two big blocks of parties. And it's pretty clear which parties will, will, will work together. And so it doesn't always create as much chaos and kind of blackmail potential for the small parties as one might expect. But certainly there are some countries and you know when that happens and and uh you know the the proportional system in in um Italy in the past has been has been blamed for some of its difficulties and Belgium as well in the past has been um a case where there's been a lot of um you know, a lot of um, fiscal indiscipline that people have blamed on multi-party uh, coalitions. Well, it gives minority parties more power than they might otherwise have, not just in terms of number of seats, but an ability to be part or, as you say, blackmail or veto a coalition creation. Uh, that's something that as Americans, we don't have we don't have that experience via that mechanism. There are within each party and sometimes in the legislature yeah. minority viewpoints that can be decisive in similar ways, but it's not the same structure. Yes, all that diversity gets gets reflected within the two the two major parties in the United States, uh, and and the the a lot of the yeah the negotiations take place in a kind of a different way, whereas uh, they might take place between parties uh, in a in a in in a proportional system. Right. They take place you know between the between say the you know the Tea Party Caucus and the and the rest of the Republicans, or you know the Congressional Black Caucus and the and the rest of the Democrats. But going back to this point about density, so you know we just had a little digression on um, yeah. forms of government. Let's go back to your point about about geographical density and the implications for political views. So there's this strong correlation between population density and uh, political preferences of the of the of the voting population. When did that start? When was that? When could you first point to that as an empirical regularity? How old is it? Yeah. I- yeah, I think that the the answer is uh, is a little different in Europe than it is in North America. It, it seemed to to correspond to the Industrial Revolution in Europe that it, at once people, you know, peasants left farms and moved to cities and started working as wage laborers in factories. They became uh, they became um, targets for the mobilization efforts of socialists and social democrats and workers' parties. And it was you know it was the, the very fact of the, this density and the creation of labor unions is what generated the kind of left-right politics that we know in many developed countries. And uh, and uh, it became you know urbanization became almost a prerequisite for the generation of the left as we know it. In the United States, it happened a little bit later. We didn't really the Democrats didn't really clearly become the party of uh, of urban workers until around the New Deal. And so uh, one of the things, uh, some, some graphs that I've made that haven't quite made it into the manuscript yet, but uh, if you look at the correlation between the county level correlation between population density and voting, you just see a lot of nothing up until the 1920s. And then toward the end of the 20s and into the 30s, all of a sudden this relationship emerges and it just gets stronger and stronger over time. 
And, uh, and that's one of the things that I've puzzled over is that, um, you know, this, it seems to have a lot to do with the location of, of, of factories and uh, railroads and uh, shipping routes and, and things like this, warehouses. Uh, but the relationship has become even stronger even in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, so there seems to be something even more to this relationship in the United States than the mere fact that uh, we have 19th century housing and sort of dense working class housing in the city centers. Uh, there seems to be a, a bit more to it. And maybe it has something to do because some of the neighborhoods that are voting for the left that are very dense are not proletarian kind of places at all. They're downtown San Francisco uh, and, uh, you know, and the uh, Upper East Side in uh, Manhattan, uh, downtown Seattle, places like this that are very high income. Not a lot of folks so working on the assembly line. that's one of the kind line. of striking. You don't, you don't have a lot of folks exactly. working on the assembly uh, and, and line so, there. Exactly. And, and this is something kind of fascinating that's happened in a lot of cities. It's not just the United States. There is this moment at which the working class housing of the early 20th century empties out. You know, there are no longer workers there. And sort of um, a very new type of uh, person moves in who is mainly interested in, in, in uh Buying, uh, being able to walk out the door and get a certain type of latte or a certain <laughs> style of sushi. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, what the city brings them. It's not proximity to a place where they're sharing tools with a bunch of other workers. It's, um, it's uh, something about consumption opportunities. And so from Sydney to London to uh, San Francisco and New York, the, the vote share of the left remains remarkably uh, consistent as the working class moves out and this new class of urban, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, yuppie, moves in, um, the, the left, you know, the labor vote share in, in Australia or England stays uh, the same. It stays at 85% or something. And as, as you point out... Which I still out, haven't completely understood. But it, it, as you point out, and I, this is one of the most uh, striking uh, correlations, it's hard to imagine that it's causal, but you make an interesting case... One of the striking correlations you point out is that voting patterns in U.S. presidential elections don't mirror the location of manufacturing. I think – tell me if I got this right. Don't Do not mirror the location of current manufacturing jobs, but do mirror the location of manufacturing jobs decades ago. Exactly. This is what, what I, one of the things that really hits you over the head. If you go into the current uh, 2000 or the two, 2010 census and you get some data on manufacturing employment uh, as a share of total employment and you plot that against the Obama vote share or the Kerry vote share or something like that, there's no relationship at all. But if you go back in the 1880 census or the 1910 census and you do the same thing, um, manufacturing as a share of total employment, you see this striking positive relationship with, uh, between between historical manufacturing employment and current democratic vote share. And uh, and so my argument for that is that these places that uh, that are that are that are voting, you know, 85, 90% for the Democrats uh, tend to be places like, uh, you know, downtown Cleveland, um, uh, where there's, there's no manufacturing to speak of anymore. But uh, the, all of the housing that was built for the workers in that, in that early part of the century is still there. Uh, and so all these places that industrialized before the rise of the automobile have these dense kind of proletarian neighborhoods with a lot of uh, affordable, uh, dense apartments. These places kind of attract uh, the type of person who tends to vote for the left, and that happens in lots of different countries. That's kind of, I think, the 
the thing that links all this together in, in these various countries. Now, you just said... And this that, is where that density correlation comes from. You just said that in a particular way. You said it attracts people who tend to vote uh, for parties on the left. And I think when the average person... Well, let's not say the average person. When an, as an economist, when I think about this phenomenon, which fascinates me, you know, why are cities so – it's not – as you point out, it's not 55-45 Democrat-Republican. It's 85-12. <laughs> uh, it's 97. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90 to 7. Uh, your, your natural thought as an economist is, is, is there's only – there's sort of two natural ways to think about it. One is the way you just described it, that, that people who are attracted to these – types of living arrangements of, of high density happen to be people of the left. The other alternative way to think about it is that when you live in close proximity to other people, you have a taste for larger government, say, or you, you're going to mm-hmm. want more government services. You're going to rely more on government. This, another argument would be in a dense urban area, people are a little bit scary. Strangers are more prevalent. You don't have the ties that you'd have in a, in a rural environment with your neighbors because you're not building a barn together. And so you've got to have something to substitute for community. And these these sort of uh, – these are kind of cheesy uh, back of the hand. I don't know what you want to call them, armchair explanations. Um, have people written about this? I'm sure that, I assume they have in political science. So is there any? Yeah, there's, there's kind of ar- less there, there? Than, than you would think. But, I, <laughs> but these arguments are, are – they're all kind of there in one form or another. Uh, to me, it all kind of boils down to uh, the, the, the different stories you're telling right now. Is, is it a selection effect right. or a treatment effect? Correct. So do cities make – do they do cities actually – if we could random, randomly assign individuals to suburban, rural, or urban environments, would we see that the city actually changes your preferences? Uh, because uh, you understand something about the value of, of, of public transportation for an urban resident, or you you know you're tripping over uh, over drug addicts on the way to work, and you and you want something done about that, um, or is it the case that people with um, with uh, you know leftist preferences uh, are, are, are more comfortable in cities, and they choose to move <laughs> to cities? They're exactly, I'm mean, yeah. the kind of person that has the you know especially high income people who have the choice. I mean, and so that's another further refinement. There are people who have the choice of whether or not to live in cities. Um, there's also, though, still um, a lot about the housing. Uh, you know, I think the combination of housing availability and uh, and actually, there's some good work by Ed Glazer suggesting that a lot one of the reasons why the poor cluster in cities in the United States is because of uh, because of um, the transportation infrastructure and the lack of automobile ownership among the poor. So that uh, combination of this 19th century housing with a uh, bus and train network makes it so that, uh, you know, you, 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 we just have a, a, a big, the, the, it could be income that's doing most of the work in the story. And, and I think that is still probably the case that, uh, the stories I'm telling about, you know, the Upper East Side uh, and and maybe the Gold Coast of Chicago, and San Francisco, those are a little bit unique. Uh, for the most part, we're talking about we're talking about people at the bottom of the economic um, spectrum. This clustering of poor people in cities, for that that has you know various explanations. When we talk about density, uh, we're talking right now. Most of the time, we've been talking about urban density. That is at the extreme one end of the extreme, very dense. Uh, mm-hmm. How does it? Vary. How does left-right vary with suburbs and then rural? So you can, if you think about, um, you know, if you think about a graph that um, on the x-axis, you know, the horizontal axis is just the the um, the 
origin is the center of some U.S. city, and you as you travel along the horizontal axis, you're getting more and more miles from the city center. The Republican vote share is pretty much a, a increasing function of that distance. So as you move out into the into the early kind of developed suburbs of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, you end up with places that are you know, moderately democratic. Um, and then you get into the, the middle suburbs and you find these really purple places. And then you get out to the exurbs and it's pretty Republican. And then you get to the rural areas and it's, and it's very Republican. But it's still never, the r- rural areas are never, the precincts are never as Republican as the urban precincts are Democratic. So you don't really find 85, 90 percent Republican precincts, really almost anywhere, which is just sort of an interesting fact. I'm not quite sure what explains it. No, it's fascinating. Um, So let's get back to this role of industrialization. What does that have to do with it? Is it just this how this strange housing stock that's left over from the fact that workers had to once live very close to where they worked? They didn't have cars to commute. There was a big factory that hired a lot of people, so a lot of people lived near it, and so they were going to be densely right. housed. And as whether it's treatment or selection, it's that housing stock today that's still affecting political outcomes. Is that your story? Yeah, that's the that, that's my best uh, my best explanation for what we see because you know the housing stock is so resilient. You know, once you put the bricks and mortar into place. They don't. They don't go away. Uh, housing doesn't really disappear. I mean, we have our, our efforts at urban renewal that we occasionally uh, we, yes, we occasionally do. go after. Uh, you know, the, Europe uh, was much of Europe was bombed in World War II. Um, but the striking thing about that is that they often built on the same footprint of the bombed out <laughs> building. They built a pretty similar style of building, similar height, similar kind of uh, number of units, and for a similar type of worker. And so you didn't really see the change in, say, German residential neighborhoods uh, after World War II that you might have guessed. So my point is that is that there's something about the built environment that once a city gets built up, its basic structure, uh, all, while there's, there's plenty of suburbanization that takes place, but that urban core, um, generally, you know, something about it is very resilient and it kind of makes these patterns last a really long time. So, and, and, you know, it's not even just the cities. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So when when Europe moved away from winner take all to a proportional representation system, uh, you tell a story in the in the book uh, about the role that, as you said earlier, the factories start up because of industrialization. Workers become unionized; they're more sympathetic to socialism. The a far left party emerges, a socialist party, uh, and of course that's a threat to existing parties on the left and to some extent, to to parties on the right. How did that uh, urbanization and industrialization uh, affect the evolution of political systems in Europe? And why didn't it happen here in the United States? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, there, the, kind of more broadly, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand why, uh, why the, uh, you know, why does Britain still have a, a single member district system? Why did it not also switch to proportional representation? Because it came very close. You know, we've never really had a moment in the U.S. where 
we were kind of on the verge of, of, of choosing uh, proportional representation nationally, but they did have a moment like that in, in, um, in the UK. And in fact, they have made the transition in the 1990s in New Zealand. Um, but, uh, but so the, the, the issue is, um, you know, as, as I try to understand it, the way I think these proportional representation systems ended up coming into being is that there were there were actors. There were so there were people who uh, had safe seats in cities. Uh, often it was a, a, in the in the in Europe it was liberals versus conservatives were the main parties uh, in the early part of the century. And as the working class gained the franchise uh, and w- was able to vote, they started these leftist parties started to win in the cities. And so what that was doing is it was squeezing out the existing parties who saw that they could only win 30% of the vote, whereas they used to be able to win, um, say, 60% in some district. And so they still had a sizable share of the vote, but it was spread out around the population so uh, across the districts. And so it became obvious to these parties that they were going to be squeezed out of existence if they didn't make a change in the electoral system before it was too late. Uh, and so those pre-existing parties uh, uh, often tried to make, it, make a deal. You know, the various parties that were about to get squeezed out kind of made a deal uh, that led to the to the adoption of proportional representation. Um, but that that deal just never, you know, there was never really a, a far left party in the U.S. that started to squeeze out, you know, the socialists and the progressives. Their um, you know, the, the socialist kind of um, uh, the platform was adopted, sort of taken over by the Democrats in in the 1930s. Uh, and so there wasn't really this moment when an insurgent party was going to push the Democrats out of existence. And perhaps at that moment, the Democrats, if they were smart, would have pushed for PR, but that never happened. And in Great Britain, the, li- the liberals were the party of the left before the, the Labour Party came around. And the Labour Party started to quickly gain support. And the liberals, had they seen where things were going, they would have insisted on proportional representation. In fact, they eventually tried. And to this day, the liberals are still pushing for proportional representation in, your, in, in the UK. But uh, they didn't see that they would be squeezed out and that the, liberal, that the Labour Party would become the main party of the left. And so they kind of missed their opportunity. And they've been ruining that ever since. And they've been squeezed into, you know, into kind of a marginal third party status. But that's, you know, it's another version of that classic question about the United States. Why did the United States not develop uh, a strong socialist party uh, that squeezed out, you know, the sort of center left party? And it's still it's not it's, a, it's probably something that lies a little bit beyond um, the, the story that I'm telling about geography. There, there, there's probably a lot more to it. So the story that you're telling, see if I understand the intuition of it. The intuition is, is that mm-hmm. if I used to get 55 percent of the vote in, in a in, in my district, and now I get forty-five, and I and I, or thirty, I get nothing because uh, I, I never win. I have to win. Right. I have to. So the right. proportional representation lets some of my team stay in power. Uh, it, it reminds me of of the way you hear some people think about redistricting in the United States. So you take a guy who's got say a sixty percent vote share, seventy percent vote share, and you know he's of the other party and you know he's never you're never gonna win. Mm-hmm. So you give him a piece of somebody else's district that that makes him win by ninety. But that doesn't cost you anything because he still only wins his one seat. You take the other people in the in a different right. district and you get your share up above fifty and it's a um it, it's somewhat similar in terms of the intuition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that you know that's what the, yeah the intuition is kind of similar that, that that you know there's an underlying distribution of political preferences in space, uh, but then when you map onto that some district boundaries and you make them winner take all 
and then you have a, rep, a legislature that is, that is made of those representatives, you can end up with a very different distribution in that legislature than you saw in the society. And it, and it matters a lot how you draw those, those lines. And that's what redistricting is all about in the United States. And you suggest in the book that because of the dominance of left-oriented uh, voters in urban er- areas in winner-take-all sit- uh, systems such as the United States – the left in the United States does not get the power it might otherwise get in a proportional representation system because it's, it's sort of dissipated in this surplus of, of, extra, of extra votes that doesn't get any extra credit for in these cities. Is that, is that fair? Yes. Yeah, so the, there is a you – know, I think for a while now, people have noticed that there are urban districts in the United States that are extremely democratic – uh, and uh, and they and you know they end up so if it's true that the, at the precinct level that uh, you have a bunch of precincts clustered together that are 80 percent uh, democratic it stands to reason that you draw a winner take all district around them and you will have uh, an 80 percent you know or a 75 percent democratic district uh, and uh, so what we end up with in a lot of states certainly not all states but many of the more industrialized states uh, larger states we end up with. Um, some one or several districts, uh, say like the Cook County, you know, the Chicago districts or in Missouri that we have, uh, St. Louis and Kansas City or in Indianapolis, it's, it's, uh, I mean, Indiana, it's Indianapolis and Gary, where there'll be a congressional district that is extremely democratic. Um, but then all the other Democrats who are spread out uh, throughout the state in these smaller cities, uh, and in the rural areas, um, they're, they're not enough of them to win districts in those places. And there are too many of them. So they win by large majorities in the cities. And so you end up with a with an asymmetry in the transformation of votes to seats, and then you get this sort of what economists call inframarginal and and other types of words to describe the competition. So if you're in a if you're in a very safe seat, um, you don't have to work very hard to please your constituents because you've got a big margin of error or uh, corruption, depending on your preference of how you describe it. Exactly. So all the competition takes place at the primary level or at the jockeying for who the party nominee is going to get, who's going to get the 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 um, blessing of the of the party's powerful. Because once you get that nomination, you're in. There's almost no uh, chance that I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, it's very hard to get a Republican on the county council or a Republican in my congressional district. So you'd think that would change the incentives of the people in power to please their constituents. Yes, in urban America, the only election is the primary. I mean, that's a pretty pretty basic uh, and interesting fact that I don't think we've fully uh, understood. That the, the only thing you have to worry about is if you somehow screw up and attract a certain type of primary challenger. But the general election is a foregone conclusion. Right. Uh, and so, well, you know, can think about the various ways in which that might affect uh, incentives uh, of incumbents. Uh, and it's great, you know, it's great for the incumbents. It's not, <laughs> it's not good for the Democratic Party. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a state like Florida, you end up with um, the incumbents in the party are people from Miami-Dade who uh, represent very left-wing um, constituencies. And then when the voters in the rest of Florida 
look at the Democratic Party in Florida and try to assess what they're all about, that's who they see. And that's sure. what they that's the kind of conclusions they draw. They look at the type of representation they think they receive from those individuals. And it, it makes it uh, hard for the Democrats to compete in state politics. So it's, you know, for a state where the Democrats do very well in uh, in Senate elections and gubernatorial elections and the presidential elections, of course, are notoriously close. But in in uh, state kind of districted elections, the um, the Republicans are, are, are dominant. And we we've and been talking part of the explanation. We've been talking about this, the implications at the national level. When you think about urban national politics and policy outcomes, when you think about it in, at the urban level, you know we have a lot of core cities in the United States that are not doing very well. So there are a few that are, New York being one of them. Uh, San Francisco has done has done pretty well. Um, but I used to live in St. Louis. The, the you know the urban core there is 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 very dysfunctional. Kansas City is is not very healthy. Um, Detroit, an obvious failure. Cleveland, not so good. Part of the my first thought as to why those cities have done so poorly and why their suburbs have done so well is because of this lack of competition for urban policies and urban urban uh, choices. We have a what you could call one-party rule in these cities, and it's not because they're Democrats. It's not that there's something bad about Democrats' policies per se. It's that anytime you have a monopoly, is essentially what is, feels like a monopoly, uh, even though there's an election every four years for for the mayor. But if if the party that the mayor represents wins every time, it can't be very good for um, serving the customer. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, it seems pretty obvious that competition is good, and there's lots of evidence uh, to that effect that the politicians uh, who are forced to 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 contend with uh, very close and uh, difficult you know, re-election battles are are much more in tune to the preferences of their constituents. They put forth more effort. Uh, they they just they just try harder. They, they it's goes uh, it's it's a very intuitive thing to claim, and I think there's a lot of evidence to back that up. Uh, and so uh, you know whether whether this you know how much of the of the kind of bad governance in urban America can we attribute to this? Uh, how much of urban decline can we you know what what caused what? That's a harder question. For I don't sure. think I have the yeah, uh, I don't think sure. I have all the answers to, to that. There's a, a no. pretty pretty complex one fair enough but uh, but I think that that basic claim is, is 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 a good one and I think we see similar things are, are, are true in in lots of places it's it's better for the voter to have uh, to have competition now we're recording this in September 2012 where uh, excuse me October 2012 so we're just about a month from uh, a presidential election and we have this weird thing in the United States called the electoral college we have this other weird thing uh, which is not that different from it which is Wyoming gets two senators. Um, Wyoming gets one fiftieth of the Senate, even though they're nothing close to one fiftieth of the population. So, on the surface, it's an historical accident, right? The when the Constitution was was voted on and decided, there were all these political forces uh, that that urban and at the time agricultural versus uh, you know cities in terms of jockeying for political power, and one of the ways that that competition emerged was through this strange system we have where every state gets two senators, but uh, being a representative is more proportional to population. Every state gets one. You, you can't get a third of one. So as a result, mm -hmm. we have a policy that over, you could argue overrepresents that sparsely populated rural 
Republican-leaning uh, Wyoming and doesn't fairly represent uh, New York City or, or Los Angeles at or Chicago at the, at the national level. Um, is that an accurate description? Yes, it is, and I, I think um, uh, the, the the aspect of that that I've looked at most carefully is just looking at the looking at the flows of intergovernmental transfers and other resources from the federal government to the states. And there's a pretty striking correlation between uh, between the states' uh, Senate representation per capita, or you know, it's, it's legislative representation per capita, and the amount of uh, federal funds it receives. So the, the states you mentioned, like Wyoming, are at the very top, and they receive uh, just far more uh, funds per capita than than the large states um, and then as, as for the the uh, you know the the implications for for national policy and whether it could pulls policies to the right it, it certainly would seem to you know it, it's not a, a stretch to, to to imagine that that if there's a kind of an urban rural dimension to politics that's going to push things uh, a bit in the in the rural di- uh, direction I mean it's not quite as dramatic as we might think because some of the overrepresented states are actually densely populated like Rhode Island and, and Delaware, the, the, the initial um, uh, states that actually created the rule in order to protect themselves. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, um, you know, and, and eventually uh, it's kind of interesting the, the story of how some of the sparsely populated Western states came to be states. You know, there was once Dakota territory and it became North and South Dakota explicitly because it was useful uh, at the time uh, in, in bolstering a political majority to create yeah. four senators rather than two. Yeah. Yeah, and that certainly still continues. One of the interesting things about this, though, is that within Senate delegations, um, so within a state like Ohio or Tennessee or one of these ones that has a really uh, asymmetric distribution of partisans within the, within the state, sometimes you see that the Senate delegation is actually a little bit to the left of the, uh, of the House delegation. Because uh, the Senate is just a kind of winner-take-all for the whole state. Uh, and so if you think that, you know, so these urban votes that don't matter so much in, a, in, the, in the House elections, um, they matter just as much in the, in a, you know, the, the, in the, in the Senate election as any other vote. So uh, you sometimes see that uh, kind, of a, a left, uh, kind of a left-leaning Democrat can actually win as a senator in one of these states. Um, and so in, in some of those moments, you have a Senate delegation that is a bit to the left of the House delegation. Um, but uh, but in general, it's correct that these Western sparsely populated states are over- overrepresented, and it kind of pulls the Senate as a whole to the right. Uh, you'd think that would bother some folks, just the way the Electoral College does as well. I mean, a lot of people, I think, resent. Uh, of course, it depends who you're rooting for, uh, but and, it, and and who you're rooting mm-hmm. for, and how, how you feel about it may change on uh, the nature of the Electoral College. But uh, you always get these appeals that we need to abolish the Electoral College, that it's such a weird thing and it should just be the popular vote that elects the president. Uh, we started off our conversation before we were, we were recording. We, I think it was before we were recording. You, you emphasized your interest in, in positive outcomes. By positive, you meant merely uh, not the everyday use of that word, but, but rather in social science, positive means the way things are, not whether they're good or bad. That, that, that's what we call normative yeah. outcomes. Normative outcomes are we judge whether the outcomes are good or bad. So right now we're describing positive effects, meaning these are the natural implications of these kind of systems of representation. But of course, many people have normative feelings about them. They think, well, if, if this pushes politics to the right, we ought to go to a better system. Uh, and those who are on the right would say, no, it's a great system. That's the way it should be. Um, Right. What are your thoughts on something like the Electoral College? Uh, is there anything normative to say about it? Is is or is it just 
it obviously encourages certain kinds of campaigning which affect how the you know the national vote turns out if it were a majority rule election people would campaign very differently than they do now yeah, my my basic take on these things is such a I'm such a positivist about them. I'm as a social scientist, I'm always trying to understand how these how these differences uh, affect outcomes. Um, and of course, every once in a while, you see something that really strikes you as just as just unfair. And and uh, I, I think um, I think Senate representation in the United States it has that quality. I think it's hard to come up with a really good normative justification for Wyoming having two senators uh, and California having two senators. And the Electoral College as well seems to be something that is uh, emerged from uh, a set of negotiations that took place uh, a long time ago um, uh, you know, with, with you know, issues in mind that are very different than the issues that people, people have today. Um, so I can certainly see why people might uh, – why, why, why the electoral college uh, might emerge as something that that people are offended by, but it, but it's it seems that we're just it's these things are so difficult to uh, to reform, mainly because uh, it, someone always thinks they might benefit from the <laughs> from the status quo, yeah. and uh, it's Some often do. you know so and, but the but the but the interesting thing about it is that that these things change over time, and uh, you know I told a story earlier about how the liberals in the UK should have latched on to uh, proportional representation earlier, and they could have been much better off, and I think you know in the United States context. Uh, who latches on to what kind of electoral reform uh, is always, um, you know, these things change over time depending on who thinks they might have an advantage. And the Electoral College, uh, lots of analysis has been done on this. You know, it is, it is just like we were describing in the case of the House and the Senate. It is a majoritarian winner-take-all way of transforming preferences into, uh, into, uh, for, uh, for, for a party into a legislative seat. In this case, it's just one seat. It's the executive. And uh, so the question, is this thing biased systematically in favor of one party or the other? And, and, and the answer seems to be not really. Um, and, it, and it kind of changes. You know, there are scenarios if you go to, um, if you go to um, you know, the website 538.com, you know, uh, uh, Silver has, Nate Silver has some, some situations in which uh, Romney can lose the electoral college um, um, uh, but win the, the popular vote and also some scenarios in which the same can happen for Obama. Um, and and um, this, the same is true when we go back historically. So it's not you know, this urban geography that I'm describing. The states are large enough units that it doesn't really seem to affect the electoral college. So it's not systematically biased every election in, in clearly in one direction uh, as far as I can tell. So at least that aspect of it is not as troubling as, as one might otherwise make it out to be. And like many things that the founders did, which I think is a blessing, not a curse, they made it hard to change. It's, it's, not, it's not so much that – I think it's not just that people are worried about whether they'd benefit in the future from the Electoral College. It's just that it's very costly to try to change it, and yeah. um, it gives you that inertia, which I think is often a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, we're, as I said, we're in October of 2012, and we're going to be hearing a lot about red states and blue states. Um, Red America, Blue America, and you have a paper called Purple America. Is there anything in there you want to talk about that's different than what we've been talking about so far in terms of generalizing about the, the state of the electorate in the United States? Well, I think you know that we can we typically talk about uh, 
you know, there's lots of work where we just talk at the individual level about voters, and there's lots of uh, work. You know, we we really because of the electoral college and the Senate and 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 uh, the importance of the states, we talk a lot about states. And um, uh, you know, what I've been doing in this project is trying to to get lower than that, and not not just to counties, but even down to precincts, and really try to really understand how um, people are arranged in space and try to understand uh, the polarization that we hear so much about at the elite level to try to understand what it looks like at the individual level. And so, um, you know, my colleague uh, Mo Fiorina has, has done a lot to try to show that individuals are not really very, very polarized, um, that they are, there's a lot of people kind of in the middle. Uh, and, uh, and we, you know, we this kind of bimodal distribution that we see in the legislature is not really what we see in society. So I've been kind of trying to understand how that works in, within, you know, in, in metro areas, in, in cities. And, you know, where are the, where are the, the, the moderates? And as we discussed earlier, there are you know, the suburbs are really where the you know, they're, they're, they're those, those are the purple places, um, and, uh, and and there's you know there's there these things can be the geography isn't always what it what it seems, uh, but you know certainly the the campaigns have a couple of different strategies that they can perhaps uh, that they can perhaps uh, um, you know we, 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 we're kind of accustomed to thinking about the them as going after independence in places where you know where there are lots of independents. So one way to try to win an election is to go to these purple suburbs and try to swing to change the minds of, of independence. But of course, another way is to go to places where there are lots and lots of your supporters and try to make sure as many of them uh, as possible show up to vote. At, and, least, um, at least in a swing state. Be... At least in a swing exactly. state. In, so, a, in a safe state, you're not, exactly. so you don't really care so much. <clears throat> right. So your strategies vary a lot depending on what kind of state it is. And so you know, you, using these kind of fine-grained precinct-level maps, you can you know, kind of start to learn about what kinds of neighborhoods you expect the candidates – I mean, if you, if you look at what the candidates are doing and what kind of ads they're purchasing, you can try to figure out what type of a strategy they are, they are employing and – it does seem to be uh, both parties seem to be working pretty hard to mobilize their base, um, but you know at the same time you've got to try to um, you know it's 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 a complicated uh, set of uh, trade-offs to decide how much to 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 work on the base and how much to to, to work on these suburban moderates. I want to I want to close with a conversation about uh, sort of about the normative side, but maybe that's the wrong way to describe it. I think a lot of people have a romance about majority rule. Certainly uh, one way that small groups of people settle disputes is they say, well, let's take a vote. And whatever gets the most votes wins. And, and I think to a lot of people, uh, that's obviously the fairest, best way to decide stuff. And so all of these things that we've been talking about that, that mitigate that, whether it's the Electoral College uh, whether it's winner-take-all districts. A lot of people say, well, that, that's just not the right way to do things. Everything, everything should be decided by a majority vote. And yet, as we know from work by Kenneth Arrow and others, uh, majority vote uh, in the normative sense, meaning leading to outcomes we'd like, isn't so strong as it seems. On the surface, nothing could be fairer than majority rule. And yet, when you look a little closer, you start to see that Majority rules got some very deep flaws in it, and and talk about talk about that argument. Why is it that majority rule is not the best system? Even though I think most people have a that's their starting place, that's their default. Yeah, this is one of the things that when I teach courses to undergraduates on institutions, we spend one you know 
do this in the first or second week, uh, you, you know, it's a very easy things you can do to, for ha- for ha- to give the students, say, um, have them do a rank ordering of their preferences for what type of pizza they would like. Um, and then you, you have each student uh, rank three and you put them together. And it's very easy to find groups of students who have what in the social choice literature is called cycling majorities, where you can show that there, there is no th- such thing as the majority will. Uh, if, if I set up the institutions in such a way that there's first a round-robin tournament of pepperoni versus vegetarian, and then the winner of that is paired off against, uh, you know, sausage, um, I can get a very, I can get a different outcome than if I do the initial pairings another way. Um, and so I can show that whoever controls the agenda basically decides what kind of pizza the students are having. And it's kind of, um, it's kind of an example of, you know, something that we've known since Condorcet and Arrow and you know, the classics of, of social choice theory, that it often is simp- simply nonsensical to say that the majority has some kind of will that will then translate into power, uh, into policy. Uh, and so, uh, they, you know, the students are always sort of surprised by this. And, and uh, uh, they, they, we, we like to believe that there is such a thing as, uh, as the group, you know, the collective will. And I think one of the basic lessons of uh, politics and of institutions is, uh, unfortunately, it's possible to aggregate those preferences in very different ways with different institutions and, and get different outcomes. So uh, we shouldn't attribute so much uh, you know, importance to, the, to, the, to, to something that we believe was the outcome of some kind of, um, some kind of um, uh, majority choice. Uh, often the truth is much more complicated and, and agenda control and, and uh, um, political power are often used in getting us to the outcomes we see. So uh, it just leads us to kind of think in a little bit different way about how we interpret uh, the decisions that are made by legislatures and uh, um, what they actually mean. Well, the other and problem so one way of the other problem I have with will of the people is we have majority election and let's say whether it's fifty five forty five or ninety ten, uh, the losers obviously felt differently. So it's not the the will of the people; it's the will mm-hmm. of those who won that election, whether it's a majority or whether it's proportional or whether there's there's this weird system we have in the United States. We don't have referenda on every item. We have, we have this weird thing called the legislature, called Congress and Senate, and there's committees. We have all this baggage, all this incredible superstructure and infrastructure around the way political outcomes are, are being coming out of our preferences. It's not just a majority rule referendum. And I think, again, I think most people – there's a lot of problems with our political system, but most people just think, well, the best way would obviously be a referendum because that would reflect the will of the people. And it doesn't for all kinds of reasons, one of which is, as you said, the, the order of the voting can be manipulated. Information can be manipulated. There's a thousand things along the way. But the, the most important thing to me is that we all have different preferences. And so once you put it into right. a political process, you're basically saying we're going to get one outcome and you're stuck with it because it was the result of, the vo- of a vote. And I don't see that as necessarily fair at all. Well, right. So one other way to think about democracy, instead of you know, thinking that there's some will of majority and we're trying to use democratic institutions to aggregate that and then turn it into policy, a very different way of thinking about democracy is we're going to put some people in charge and they're going to do some stuff. 
And then after four years, we're going to look backwards, ret- retrospectively, at what they've done and decide whether we like it or not. And if we like it, we'll give them another chance. And if we don't, we'll dip into the pool of candidates and we'll, we'll pull out another one and see if they can do better. And so this is a view of democracy that is really more about accountability than, uh, than it is uh, about, about a kind of representativeness of, of some underlying will. Uh, but as you already kind of described in the United States, it's becoming very difficult for us to do what I just described because we have a Senate, a House, lots of committees. We have the filibuster, we have the executive, we have the judiciary, and we have state governments, which then have two chambers and and an executive. Um, And it's very hard for us to figure out who's responsible for the policies we see and then somehow hold them accountable. Uh, And so that's why, you know, to some people, uh, to some some minds, uh, kind of a very clear British style accountability system would be would be better. Again, that's a normative question. I'm not, there's there's trade offs in both directions. Yeah. Well, as as a uh, I'll make a normative comment. My preference is to because it, political decisions will struggle to reflect anything remotely like the will of the people. I want as few decisions as possible put in that into that pl- into that sandbox. Uh, and I rather have the competition of, of free association and, and free choice uh, make those decisions and allow for the diversity of outcomes that private markets and private decisions have rather than political decisions, which are inevitably coercive. But that's my normative, uh, that's my normative preference. Yep. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a new, you know, thinking about how institutions uh, reflect the will of individuals. I mean, this is a, this is a, you know, these are, these are basic questions that people don't often think about, but they really should shape the way you, um, the way you answer these, these bigger normative questions about, say, you know, how, how large should the state be? Yeah. What and, is, you know, it, what kinds of things should the state do? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, we're almost out of time. Do you want to say anything about this upcoming election as a positive uh, political scientist? Either at the at the national level or the House at the presidential or the House or the Senate. Well, it seems uh, it seems likely that uh, we will have more more of the same in in that uh, we'll have divided government of some kind. It, uh, that 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 seems the most most likely outcome. So if we are hoping for a big resolution to all the uncertainty that um, that we think characterizes the current moment. Um, I suspect there won't be much uncertainty resolution. Um, but uh, that, that said, it, it is, it is, uh, it is um, um, something that will be exciting and interesting to watch, and there's a lot that still has to happen. It's certainly not a done deal in either direction. My guest today has been Jonathan Rodden. Jonathan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.